In Jess Walter's latest novel, The Cold Millions, the industrial workers of the world, known popularly as the Wobblies, united to fight the repression of laborers and break the system of corruption and kickbacks that fleece them and all their efforts for better working conditions and fair pay. Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, a 19-year-old orator of the movement known as the Rebel Girl, and a small cast of other historical figures, take center stage in this fictionalized account set in Spokane, Washington in 1909, where two brothers are swept up by the violence and drama of that time. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. Brothers Rye and Gig Dolan make a part of the large underclass settled in the Spokane, Washington area at the turn of the century. They are young and idealistic and searching for honest work. But they're soon caught up in the ills that befall the efforts of the IWW to fight for workers' rights. It's not so much that they believe in and understand the philosophies of the movement, but they are idealistic and driven by their own sense of a muddled morality that drives them further into the snarl of both the labor leaders of those battles and the exploitive employment agencies and other nefarious types, as well as the cast of suffragettes, vaudevillians, and an array of unforgettable characters. I spoke to Jess Walter about his latest novel, The Cold Millions. So can you just Tell us a little bit about The Cold Millions and just set things up for our listeners who maybe haven't read the book yet. Sure. Uh, The Cold Millions is a historical novel about uh, the free speech riots of 1909. It follows two brothers, Gig and Rye Dolan, who are itinerant workers, hobos, who get drawn into the free speech riots um, and the the battle for economic justice um, uh, led by Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, a real-life character and union organizer uh, who was involved in the early industrial workers of the world and their battles against local law enforcement, police brutality, and a lot of issues that I think resonate in the world today. And you mentioned Elizabeth Gurley Flynn. She's at the heart of this, this known as the rebel girl. How did this person and her work even become the seedbed for this novel? It's interesting. I've been, for years, I have looked for a way to write about income inequality, which I find to be, you know, something that as a culture... Um, we don't spend enough time talking about how insidious and disastrous it's been for this country. And um, and I, I had known about this period in my hometown in the early 1900s and the battle uh, that the industrial workers of the world put up for free speech and for workers' rights. And Uh, And knowing that there was this real life historical figure, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who came west as a teenager and arrived in Spokane, pregnant, 19 years old, estranged from her husband, and 10 years before women had the right to vote, led this um, peaceful protest that in many ways changed the history of the West and of labor in America. I just thought, how has this character slipped through the cracks of history? And... Um, And a historical novel felt like a way for me to restore that character to a place that I think she deserves in the culture. I mean, that is just such rich and fertile ground for research, this, the industrial workers of the world, the free speech rights, the labor movements of, of that era of the early 1900s. 
But then I think about how fertile that ground is for the imagination and for you to simply ping from those facts and those people to create this other imagined world with imagined people. Um, It just, it makes so much sense. It's not just like this one dimensional space of hobos and nobody cares and it's not interesting. It's such a rich landscape and these characters are just endlessly fascinating. Yeah, thank you. I um, I think that was my goal. I, I, I wanted to write something big and rip-roaring. I wanted to write an end of the West period feeling sort of novel. And um, and if I could append that fictional story to something that I felt like deserved more attention, I felt like I could hopefully accomplish those two things, right? A novel that you get lost in the way you might get lost in Lonesome Dove or in um, True Grit or, you know, something else of that sort of historical period or Deadwood. But also, hopefully, with with those issues that they were dealing with at that time, with, with very real um, implications of of the protests that they were engaged in, that I could draw a direct line to you know what we in the United States have dealt with the last few years, from the Black Lives Matter protests of last summer to protests you know by young people over um, climate change, you know, walking out of schools for climate change or, or reasonable gun laws. You know, I, I think in, and in finding these young characters, my protagonists, Gig and Rye are 16 and 23 when the novel starts. And of course, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn was 19 when she led this movement. Um, I, in that way, I could write in some way about the idealism of young people always and the way they are so driven politically. And so, yeah, I, I felt like it was the opportunity to do two things. And and with the with the power and hopefully the sweep of the narrative to, um, you know, to draw that line to the place we're at in the country now. So Gig and Rye, when you start out reading this book, perhaps because he's such a, a presence and ostensibly the leader in this partnership, right? These two brothers. Okay. It feels like Gig will will sort of carry the whole story. And of course, he's so important. But it was so interesting to see how Rye absorbs that role and how he emerges as a protagonist and with such far-reaching connections in the story. That's something I really appreciated about the way that he just grows and develops as a character. And there's always sort of like this aside about, well, he's really young, um, but he's just experiencing just a mountain of problems. And I, again, I imagine that that must, must be the story of so many young people from that era. Yeah. I, you know, in, in some way, I, uh, some ways I think, you know, someone of that age in that time grew up faster. You know, the the place Gig and Rye come from, these mining towns in Montana, um, if they had stayed and worked in the mine, their average life expectancy would be their late 30s anyway. That's the life Elizabeth Gurley Flynn was looking for, was headed toward if she returned, you know, to her husband, who was a miner in Butte, Montana. So it's a shorter life. It's, you learn things faster. But I, I so appreciate that you saw Rye that way, because I think for me too, 
you know, I, I knew going in, I was writing a social novel. I knew going in, there would be great adventure in, in the period and the place and these wild, larger than life characters. I think one of the things that surprised me as a writer was that it was a coming of age story. It was really wry growing into these beliefs into the person that he became. And I loved for both he and Gig that the vehicle of their growth was a book, was War and Peace by by Tolstoy. Um, and, and the way Gig almost hands that off to his brother, it's almost like a baton in a relay race. Uh, and as someone who is a working class kid who feels like he everything that he gained in the world came from books, um, it was really lovely to be able to hand that to my characters. Well, I have to say that every single scene that involved books absolutely broke me from the line about <laughs> Gig always carried a book in his bindle and yeah. he treasured the incomplete works of Tolstoy, right? Because he just had a f uh, three of the of the volumes from the five volume set. And somehow more heartbreaking was what's almost like this Corsican connection that Rye ends up having with books, the way he himself, he himself takes on this same affinity because he wanted to get to know his brother better but then he just owns that passion for books um and so the the line he always carried a book in his bindle and read as if he expected an exam that just punched me in the gut um and rye was moved to tears to see the walls of books in lem's mansion knowing that his brother probably won't ever be able to experience anything like that in his life. And then the library. It's just the, the appearance of books in the novel um, was so, I mean, it was so natural and organic and perfect, but it was, it was just such an emotional element of the novel that I don't know that I had expected. Yeah. Thank you so much. I, it, I don't know if it's um, against the writer's union to admit that you sometimes cause yourself to tear up. But I, <laughs> uh, every time that those scenes you're talking about, I, I felt that the same way. I felt that so personally, you know, as a, as a kid who grew up believing in a sort of egalitarian um, nature of this country that, that education and books were the social escalator. It was the way that you dreamed uh, that everyone could sort of be equal. And so, yeah, that the, the title of the book comes from a moment when Rai is sitting in the library of a wealthy mining magnate and ostensibly the villain of the book, uh, Lemuel Brand, and he's surrounded by a floor-to-ceiling library of leather-bound, gilded-edged books that this millionaire will never even crack, that they're only there for show. Um, and in that moment, he he comes to realize that it's not five or six or 10 levels separating him from this kind of wealth, but an infinite number, that this person has so much money. And it does break his heart for just a moment because he knows it, his, bro his brother couldn't even dream of a room like this with heated floors and brandy in his belly and, and books, a lifetime of books. And for Gig, who has come across war and peace on the great hobo highway, trading books with other um, hobos, other well-read, learned hobos, um, 
Yeah, it's really an emotional moment. And I, and I that connects, as you said later, with a scene in a Carnegie library where a librarian really treats Ride decently for the first time in the novel, the first sort of civilian, um, by giving him the later versions of, of War and Peace. So I, I do feel like the the novel's heart is in a library and as you know as probably mine is i think sometimes when you're writing fiction there are certain things about yourself you can't escape and my romanticism is always sparked um when somebody's handed a great book i appreciated that and and the librarian very much the other thing that rye really appreciates is clothes and he <laughs> asks fred the the lawyer for a bowler hat and then the way he's willing to pay for expensive gloves and what that means to him and then the suit he invests in. But but also, uh, you know, speaking of um, folks in the novel like the librarian who extend a certain level of compassion to Rye, I'm thinking now about Chester from the clothing store who helps him buy his, his suit. You know, he helps him shop around for one. I keep thinking now about the characters here, even Willard, of all characters, helping Rye tie his tie in the automobile. I think I read that part through tears. I think book reviewers also have <laughs> <laughs> to come clean when, when that happens. Um, you know, these are very complicated people. They are certainly not all good, but they're also not all bad. And I really appreciated seeing them, those individuals in those moments where they here they see this kid who's obviously had a has had a rough go of things and they extend that compassion that's not far-fetched that's not you know I and I just I just thought the wheels of this story keep turning because of that you know because of of those actions and that that level of compassion that the characters give to each other in these moments, small moments. Yeah, and I think those wheels are humanity. They're that common thing that we somehow find ourselves looking past. But um, yeah, for a character like Rai, who's orphaned, who's you know lost all of his family except this one brother, and you know is following his older brother around working itinerant jobs. Um, but he is a close horse. I, it, it's one of the great thrills of fiction writing is when you start to realize things about your characters. And it causes us, us novelists sometimes to resort to uh, a kind of mysticism, you know, that the characters act on their own or something. And they really don't. But but you find yourself learning about them as you go along. And and that quality is so thrilling. And to, and And it did give you know, rhyme moments to imagine himself on the other side of this great class divide. Uh, you know, he, he will stand and watch people on the streetcar and, and imagine their lives, imagine where they're going. Uh, and, and that growth, that, you know, that ability to, to imagine himself there. It, it was interesting for me writing a novel in which the protagonist was not necessarily the hero. Um, if you know what I mean, the hero of the novel is very much Elizabeth Gurley Flynn. Rye as the protagonist is almost um, representative of of what can be achieved through through the goals that Elizabeth Gurley has, Gurley Flynn has. And so his, you know, his aspiration to rise up into the dawning middle class of America in the 20th century uh, is is only possible because of 
you know, the, the heroism that he encounters in, in the labor movement. And he, I mean, this is a coming of age. He is coming into his own and figuring out what he likes. And, and one of those things happens to be clothes. And we learn as readers, the names of so many styles and cuts of collars and suits and unrelated to clothing, but related to uh, uh, something else. I also now know what a plate rail is. Uh, (laughs) uh, And there are so many other really specific terms we learn and also sort of the vernacular of the time. Um, Del Dalvo's grog blossom nose and some of these other terms I didn't have to Google because of all of the context clues. But how did you come to the the lexicon of that time? Um, so I, I, an author loves to hear that that the context and that the sort of the almost the soup of the novel carries all the flavor it needs. You know that yeah. you can that a character like Dell can say, Spokane gave me the morbs. And, <laughs> um, and you don't have to go look up the word morbs to find out that it was a 19th century word, you know, to describe a feeling of unease that you can sort of get that from the character. Yeah. And, um, and that was one of the great thrills of this book was immersing myself in that language in, in the, the last bits of 19th century Victorian language in slang that has been lost um, in the, in the language of, of the workers of that time, you know, that, um, that gig would get a job, get one end of a two man misery whip, a saw that you would, uh, you know, a big saw that it took two men to operate or that rye would pound wedges in the curfs, um, you know, to keep this saws from binding that, you know, the, that language was so rich for me that it, it was in many ways, uh, like a melody that I just really wanted to play. I wanted, I wanted to live in that world and in Del Delvo's, you know, world of, of morbs and being lob, lob cocked and being, um, have being banty fanged and, uh, <laughs> And, and all of that, yeah, it was, it was a rich language that I felt like I had to become fluent in so then I could write the novel and hopefully, you know, readers would gain a sort of fluency themselves because I, I think it's a rich vernacular that, um, that was especially, for me, was especially uh, potent in this world. You know, the, the danger of the world, the... Um, the economic differences, all those things I just felt like were, um, you know, that they they came together in that language. There's this line in the novel that's repeated. A woman owns nothing in this world but her memories. Um, the women in the novel, they are another driving force. And I've considered the ways that they are, they are critical. Obviously, um, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, of course, but also in in ways different and similar, Ursula the Great. And I was thinking earlier about even um, Mrs. Ritchie. I thought, imagine how important, again, her compassion, but but also um, their industriousness, their their ingenuity and their their industriousness. I, I just was so uh, impressed with seeing these characters just also dealing with, uh, the problems of that time in their own individual ways just to survive. Yeah, it's really interesting to write 
female characters and give them agency at a time when almost by law they were not afforded agency. And and you have Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who is really irrepressible, a force of nature. You know, you have this 19-year-old just, you know, standing on street corners demanding um, demanding rights for workers and free speech and 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 women's rights. And and if you're not careful, you can sort of imagine that that's how everyone could act. And she's singular, you know, that that historical figure was, you know, her audacity. I think you you also need to see p- people who manage that world in different ways. Uh, Ursula the Great manages it through her own charm and talent and um, through the desire of some of these men around her. Uh, Mrs. Ricci, the, the boarding house, who runs the boarding house, you know, manages it through the kindness that to these young men um, and, and her own maybe disappointment in her real sons. Uh, and then Gemma, who is um, another female character in the book and, you know, and has to hide her ethnicity, hide the fact that, um, that you know, her, her mother is Roma and is what would have been called gypsy at the time and that her father is Native American. And, uh, and so all those characters are managing the same world that Elizabeth Gurley Flynn is, but they're managing it in ways in which they have to work within the system, a very, you know, a, a, an unfair misogynistic system in which they're 10 years from having the right to even vote, to own property, um, you know, a second class citizenship that, that women lived under. And so creating those characters and giving them a fullness um, hopefully was a way to, to not only illustrate their characters, but to show, I think, how singular someone like uh, Gurley Flynn was. I had a research project uh, with a with a co-author uh, on the city of San Antonio. Um, and when all you have to figure out about the history of a place is newspapers, or mostly newspapers, microfilm yeah. and microfiche, you do have to sort of cross-reference and research and triangulate and double-check and make sure that you've got your facts straight. In the papers of of this city of San Antonio, of certain eras, it seemed like one or another newspaper was, in fact, perpetuating a, a kind of a line of of soft bigotry or bigotry. Sure. Um, and also, there were things I was, you know, we were sort of suspicious about some of the stories that we couldn't cross-corroborate. Did you encounter that when you were researching for this novel? Anything like that? Oh, definitely. There, uh, and a great deal of my research was newspapers. There were four daily newspapers in Spokane, um, three sometimes during this period. And two of them were establishment newspapers. They were, you know, they were very much the voice of establishment Spokane of this of the police and the city council and then there were then there were two um there were there was a labor newspaper and then there was a sort of populist newspaper Hearst newspaper and you used the word triangulate which is exactly what I felt like I was doing I would read about the same event in all four different newspapers and it they might as well have been describing not just different events but different universes um, 
it's interesting. We we take for granted now that you'll get a different version of reality if you watch Fox News or if you watch MSNBC, if you listen to NPR or if you listen to Rush Limbaugh. But that world's not new. It was it was another of those echoes that I felt, another of those resonances that um, uh, I think there's a certain freedom in writing fiction. Um, as I said, you're almost aiming more for a fluency in the time than you are the exact details of what happened. And that, and that fluency allowed me to then create characters who can experience the world based on the best estimates that I can make after reading those various newspapers. The way the free speech protests in Spokane were covered by those four different newspapers, by the... Um, by the and also by the accounts of of protesters who survived is was miles apart and um, and and so within that you do have to sort of navigate uh, you know a best guess about what could have happened um, I think you know the the motives of of various you know sides are you know allow you to maybe lean more toward one or another, um, you know, seeing the, the account of, of someone who was beaten in jail and then having that corroborated by uh, one of the newspapers, um, you know, you, th there were ways in which I felt like I could really land on us on a version of what happened. Um, but again, I was really careful in my acknowledgments to point out this is a fictional um, a fictional account of these things, uh, and and to show some of my sources so that people can you know read it, read more and hopefully um, come to that moment of history on their own. Uh, but I think no matter how you come at at a moment of history like this, you you can't help but admire the idealism and the and the activism of these young people who fought so hard for basic fairness and decency. And whatever your politics are, I think you can't read a novel like this and get to know these characters and come away completely discounting the free speech riots of that earlier era and the labor movement. If, if you just look around at our world today and look back at the story of someone like Rai, who, although he's a, a fictitious character is so realistically drawn and, and is pinned to these real life events and real people. So I'm thinking about how, you know, social justice is, is a term that people talk about or they shy away from or they don't want to talk about it. They're afraid to talk about it or they're not, you know. But when living through moments like these in the early 1900s and then now in 2020, it makes me feel that the present moment is so, excuse the pun, but it's, it's so pregnant with possibility that we could somehow come to see the impact of modern-day Elizabeth Gurley Flynn's come to fruition in the not-so-distant future in ways that, you know, move beyond what we've seen so far with, for example, just the removal of statues or the changing of names of buildings, right? Um I don't know. I, so I've been thinking a lot about that lately, that, that those, those connections. And exactly as you say, you can, you can look at a work like this and see the impact that 
that these young people had. It, yeah, I, I, it's funny. I've gotten the question before. This is so such an interesting period. Were you tempted to write nonfiction? And I was. Um, the thing that you were able to create with historical fiction, with any fiction, is is a real sense of empathy because you can create a, a full three-dimensional character like Rye Dolan. And there's some something that happens when you see him learn to tie a tie for the first time that you connect with yourself. You connect so completely with that person. Now, this is a period of time in which immigrants were demonized in the way they have been the last four years. And this is, this is the moment in history when America first uh, enters the lexicon as a political cudgel. And, and so when those immigrants are, you know, brown skinned people that, um, you know, from countries that, uh, that some Americans look down upon, um, perhaps reading a novel about when immigrants from Serb and Slav countries, when it, uh, when Irish immigrants were looked down upon, when there were signs saying, you know, no Irish allowed, um, perhaps it, it causes in that moment of empathy, people to look at immigration differently, to look at those requests differently. This last summer, the, the, the protests were not theoretical. They were not thought experiments. They were about life and death, about what it's like to, to be an African-American and to have to give your son a speech about what happens, you know, if he's, if he's beaten by law enforcement. And, and I think, I think, you know, it, it, it's, as a novelist, it's unfortunate that empathy becomes politics, that, that we don't start with empathy for other human beings and their experiences. But it's one of the great things about reading all fiction is that it, if anyone who does that engages in, in being in someone else's point of view long enough, that I think it's one of the ways in which we can change and shape um, uh, you know, their very sense of, of what's behind some of these issues. Uh, and even if it doesn't change what you believe, you at least allow yourself uh, to see the world behind those people for whom those issues are important. Jess Walter, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you. Thanks for that great read of the book. Jess Walter is the author of The Cold Millions. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Bree Kirkham is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides.